Thanks, Nay. Thanks, Kaiting and Tony. You can take a seat. Uh, we are continuing our series in Titus this morning. Uh, if you weren't here last week, you missed out, but it's okay. I'm going to try and help us get up to speed uh, with where we've been quickly. So the book of Titus, it's a, it's a letter written from Paul to a man named Titus. Um, so Paul had commissioned Titus on the island of Crete to help the church there. Uh, in verse 5 of last week's passage, Paul says to Titus, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Paul had previously um, obviously helped to establish the church in Crete and he's left Titus there to put in order what was left unfinished. And it's in this letter that we get to read um, through the list of instructions, encouragements, reminders uh, that Paul writes to Titus as to how best to help the local churches in Crete. So last week, Dan helped us look at uh, the first nine verses of the letter. Uh, we looked at the introductory few verses where Dan helped us to see um, how God chooses his people, how the knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. Uh, Dan talked about how the church is a maturing people. We looked at the hope of eternal life, which God promised from the beginning. Uh, we saw that we can have faith in God because God never lies, and it's this hope of eternal life that is proclaimed, the proclamation of God's word gives assurance to believers. Uh, we then looked at verses 5 to 9, uh, where Paul instructs Titus to appoint elders in all the towns of Crete. And Paul gives a list of qualifications to be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe, to not be overbearing, quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain, to be hospitable, to love what is good, to be controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. And finally, uh, to hold to the fa- whole family to the trustworthy message as it's been taught. Uh, if you want to hear a more drawn-out explanation rather than me rushing through these words, uh, Dan's sermon is able to be heard online. Uh, so if you go to unihillchurch.com.au, uh, we have a sermons tab. If you scroll down a little bit, there is a link to hear uh, that message there. Um, so if any of that piqued your interest, make sure to go and do that. Uh, but let's get into today's passage. going to be exploring verses 10 to 16 of Titus chapter 1. Uh, but first, let me pray. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for uh, this portion of Scripture. We thank you for this morning. Lord, we just ask that you give us ears to hear what you want to be saying to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you want to read along, we're in Titus chapter 1 from verse 10. I'm going to be reading from the NIV translation. Um, have the Bibles in front of you if you can. Otherwise, the select few verses at a time will be up on the screen. So reading from verse 10. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith, and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Um, You're going to have to give me a minute because I can see I'm reading some old notes. I'm going to try and refresh this quickly. I think we've got it. All right. 
Okay, we'll be all right. So I thought I'd quickly read a fairy tale. I'm sure you all know it. It is Little Red uh, Riding Hood. Didn't actually think about the mechanics of a microphone and a book, but we're going to make this work. I'm going to read most of it to us. I'm sure you're familiar with it. I'll show you the pictures, of course. Can everyone see? Are we are good. It says, in a faraway wood, there lived a kind girl called Little Red Riding Hood. She was taking a basket of food to her sick granny. Remember to go straight to granny's house, said Little Red Riding Hood's mother. Don't stray off the path and don't talk to any strangers. Little Red Riding Hood set off to see granny. Little Red Riding Hood followed the path through the woods. She hummed a little tune as she swung her basket. She saw lots of pretty blue flowers, but she didn't see the wolf hiding in the trees. Little Red Riding Hood stopped to look at the flowers. Hello, little girl, said the big bad wolf. What are you doing? Little Red Riding Hood jumped with fright. I'm going to see my sick granny, who lives in the little house in the woods, she said. What a kind girl you are, said the wolf. I'm sure your granny will like these pretty blue flowers. Why don't you stay and pick some for her? He smiled, showing his big white teeth. The big bad wolf ran off into the woods. <laughs> While Little Red Riding Hood stayed to pick some flowers, some blue flowers, the big bad wolf ran all the way to Granny's house and gobbled her up. He put on Granny's cap and glasses. The big bad wolf got into Granny's bed. Soon afterwards, Little Red Riding Hood arrived at Granny's house. The door was wide open. Little Red Riding Hood walked in. Are you in bed, Granny? She called. Little Red Riding Hood went into the bedroom. She walked up to the bed. Granny didn't look very well. Oh, Granny, Little Red Riding Hood said. What big ears you have. All the better to hear you with, my dear, said the wolf in a Granny voice. Granny had very big ears. Oh, Granny, said Little Red Riding Hood, what big eyes you have. All the better to see you with, my dear, said the wolf in his Granny voice. Little Red Riding Hood thought Granny looked odd. Oh, Granny, no, wrong voice. Oh, Granny, <laughs> said Little Red Riding Hood, what big teeth you have. All the better to eat you with, growled the wolf. He opened his mouth wide and leapt at Little Red Riding Hood, the big bad wolf ate Little Red Riding Hood. And there's a happy ending, fortunately. There's a few more pages. I'll leave this up front in case anyone's needing some closure in about 25 minutes from now. <laughs> if you need closure, then you didn't read the right books in your childhood. But in this story, a poor Little Red Riding Hood is swallowed by a wolf, a wolf who is posing and disguising himself as her Grandmother, Little Red was doing a good deed by bringing her sick granny some food. Uh, but clearly she didn't know her grandmother uh, well enough to know that when she got to her granny's house that in that bed was not granny, but instead the wolf that she had encountered earlier. And as we look at today's passage, and as we ponder the story of poor Little Red Riding Hood, you know, it's clear to see that without proper knowledge and discernment, we risk getting ourselves in danger. Little Red Riding Hood was not quick enough to recognize the wolf. And so what happens, the big bad wolf 
8, Little Red Riding Hood. In today's passage, Paul warns Titus about deception, about false teaching. It was prevalent in the early church and it's certainly prevalent today where truth is getting harder and harder to decipher and recognize. You know, not too long ago, Kiting and I were, uh, went up to Kmart up on Burwood Highway and as we were about to enter, these two people came up to us and they, they opened with this line. They said, have you heard of Mother God? Have you heard of Mother God? Has anyone bumped into these people before? A few of us, yep. Normally when I'm in these kinds of situations, my first inclination is to kind of just apologize, kind of just keep on walking, you know, walking along, right? But my curiosity got the better of me this time. And I said, no, I certainly have not heard of Mother God. And so Kiting and I started talking to these uh, people. And all of a sudden, he's looking very excited to start telling us about Mother God. And he starts referencing the Bible to my surprise. And we, so we let him know that we read the Bible too, and neither of us could remember there being a Mother God. And so he goes to a few different uh, scriptures, for example, Galatians 4.26, which says, uh, but the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. And he starts opening up some Old Testament scripture. For example, Genesis 1, 26, 27, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. And he starts showing us how this is proof of Mother God, where males were made in the image of the Father, and females were made in the image of the Mother. And he showed us another bunch of passages that were uh, all supposedly proof of Mother God and how just like we can't physically exist without our earthly mothers here on earth, we also can't spiritually exist without our heavenly mother giving us life. And as we're having this conversation, you know, each time he showed us a piece of scripture, you know, we were trying to show him what the passage actually meant. About how some of these scriptures he was showing us were actually talking about the church, about the bride of Christ. I was trying to show him passages that talked about actual salvation that comes from Jesus alone. They were clear as day. And as we were having this conversation, as gently as we could, we were telling him that he was wrong. We were showing him scriptures that proved that he was wrong. But the reality, is, was, reality was these people had been deceived. These two people came from a church called the World Mission Society Church of God. And this church only began in the 1960s and now has 7,500 churches with 3.3 million people registered as members. On Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7.15, Jesus says this. He says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. So just like the wolf came in granny's clothing, but inside he was a ferocious wolf seeking to devour. Jesus was warning people to beware of false teachers. People who outwardly may appear to be harmless. They may call themselves Christians. They may profess to read the same Bible as you do. But the reality is that anyone who presents to you a teaching that is in opposition to the Bible, these people inwardly are like ferocious wolves disguised as sheep. And as you look across the different branches of Christianity, we see large groups of people who have followed a particular church, a particular teaching. Today we have the Church of the Latter-day Saints, this church that has added another whole book separate to the Bible, the Book of Mormon. Mormons say they are Christians, but they actually reject the foundational truths of God's Word. 
The Mormon religion teaches that God was merely an exalted man who earned his position by good works, and that they too can attain the status of gods in the afterlife through their works here on earth. I mean, it's a clear contradiction to what the Bible clearly teaches. And yet this religion now has over 17 million members spread over 31,000 churches. Again, ferocious wolves, wolves in sheep's clothing. And I'm sure we've all come across uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses at some point or another. You know, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that salvation is obtained by a combination of faith and good works. Jehovah's, Jehovah's Witnesses reject the doctrine of the Trinity. They believe Jesus simply to be a created being. They believe the Holy Spirit simply to be the inanimate power of God. They've even retranslated the Bible to reflect their own unique doctrines. It's called the New World Translation. The New World Translation has actually gone through so many revisions and additions because the Jehovah's Witnesses keep discovering more scripture that contradicts their own faith. You know, this church now has 8.7 million members spread across 117,000 different congregations. And we know there are so many organizations and people out there professing to be Christian, and yet they completely distort God's word. And these people amass big followings. They create confusion. In Luke 17, Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So this is why Paul left Titus in Crete. Just as different groups of Christianity exist today, so it was when Paul wrote this letter to Titus. The last verse we looked at last week, as Paul was describing what an elder was to be like, in verse 9 it says, He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. And why is that so important? In today's passage, verse 10, For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. So for the church in Crete, Paul says there were many who were full of deceptive teaching. And we see it's the circumcision group again. Uh, four weeks ago, I was preaching from uh, Philippians 3, if you remember, where Paul was warning against the same group of people. And do you remember what Paul said in Philippians 3? Paul says, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. You know, once again, Paul was warning against a group of Jewish legalists who were heavily influenced by the Jewish law. And this was a group who agreed that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed that salvation could be found in Jesus, but... But they insisted that the Gentile Christians could only be a part of this salvation if they kept the Jewish law and its customs. They insisted that the Gentiles be circumcised. And this whole debate in the early church as to whether uh, Christians and non-Jewish converts to Christianity needed to be circumcised was a big one. And I won't go into the same details I did uh, last time, but we know from the Old Testament that circumcision was required for God's people. It was a part of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. It was part of the law given through Moses. It was embedded into their way of life for 2,000 years. And so when the gospel started to spread after the ascension of Jesus, there were thousands of Gentiles who heard the message of Jesus and were converted. Gentiles who hadn't been circumcised. In Acts 15.1, it says, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. 
unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Further in verse 5, they said the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So this group of people who had grown up in the Jewish customs and the Mosaic law and who'd come to believe in Jesus were saying that the Mosaic law still needed to be upheld in order to be saved. But clearly this group had completely missed the whole point of Jesus' message. In Galatians 5, Paul says, Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. So Paul warns Titus against this group of Jewish legalists. In verses 11 to 13, Paul tells Titus, they must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always lies, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true, therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. So the very first instruction for Titus and the church leaders here is to silence and rebuke those who oppose sound doctrine, to stop these people from spreading uh, their errors within the church. And no doubt these false teachers would have seemed like nice people. You know, the devil is clever enough not to use villainous people that no one wants to listen to. You know, these false teachers may have had you over for a meal. They would have been your friend. They would have professed to know the same God. They would have had their innocent, well-meaning sheep's clothing on, right? This is probably how they were disrupting whole households at a time. Through the spread of deception, by teaching things contrary to the true gospel, by taking the attention off of Jesus and onto more meaningless talk, speculating about genealogies and Jewish myths, adding works as a requirement for salvation that was supposed to be received through the grace of God alone. And this is why Paul instructed Titus to appoint elders in every town. As we read verse 9 again, in referring to the elder, it says, He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So there we see the two ways the elder can assure there was sound doctrine amongst the churches. Firstly, to encourage believers through sound doctrine, and secondly, to refute those who oppose it. So the elder is to teach according to sound doctrine, and the elder is ref to refute those who oppose sound doctrine. All right, we're going to pause there. We're going to have a little uh, competition. And uh, Amy and Simon, you're our test subjects for this morning. You can come up the front. Don't look too nervous, but I'd be nervous. Um, everyone's playing, though. We're all playing a game. Uh, if you have your phones and you like writing your phones, do that. Otherwise, Nate's going to help uh, hand over a piece of paper and a pen to you. Uh, but we're doing 10 uh, true or false questions. So it is team Amy and Simon versus team everyone else. You're going to answer individually though, right? Except for t Amy and Simon, they get to be a team. 
So Amy and Simon are going to have their true or false sign. You might want to come on the same slide if you want. The questions will be up on the screen. So if anyone beats Amy and Simon, then the whole church wins. Otherwise, if Amy and Simon beat you all, then obviously they win, you all lose. So we're doing true or false questions. Just some general knowledge. I like it this way better. For those interested, all throughout my notes, I keep saying true of false for some reason. So true or false. All right. Has everyone got paper, pen, phone? Ten. We're going to do ten questions. Just getting ready for trivia night next year. You're a 50-50 chance of getting it right, so it shouldn't be too hard. All right, we're going to do question one. It'll come up on the screen. It says, the soleus is a muscle in your calf. True or false? You guys can wait a second for them to get an answer if you want. You can discuss it. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's going to write their answer down. True or false? I'm not going to give you long. All right, everyone. Amy and Simon, would you reveal your answer? They've said true. The answer is true. Let's give you a point, self a point. And can someone keep score for Amy and Simon? Yeah, Nathan will do that. <laughs> All right, don't put your answer up too early, otherwise I think everyone's copying. All right, question number two. There are a total of 23 vertebral discs in the spinal column. True or false? <laughs> Simon accounting. <laughs> yes. I'm not going to know the answer to your question, but yet. Twenty-three was the question. Yeah. <laughs> it's like they're having a bit of trouble with this question. I feel like we need some Jeopardy game show music in the background. <laughs> I was ref probably referring more to Marcus for that one, but thank you, Nathan Tyan. <laughs> Appreciate it. I'll get you a microphone. <laughs> All right. I'm going to need you to lock in and answer. <laughs> I don't know, probably. <laughs> All right, let's see your answer. They've gone true. The answer is true. <laughs> All right, question three. The biceps femoris is located in the arm. True or false? There's the music. Get your answers down. 
All right. That is time. Let's reveal your answer. They've gone false, and it is false. <laughs> yes, correct. <laughs> yeah, it's in the quad, right? All right. Number four. True or false? A ligament attaches a muscle to a bone. Get your answers down. All right, that's enough time. Let's reveal the answer, your answer. They've gone false. That is correct. All right, four from four. Is anyone else four from four right now? <laughs> Mark has got the answers in front of him. No, a tendon does that. A ligament attaches, what is it, bone to bone? All right, number five. In anatomy, ACL stands for anterior crucial ligament, true or false? Lots of uh, confused faces along the crowd. All right, let's reveal your answer. They've gone false. That is correct. It is anterior cruciate ligament. Number six. The spinal column is dorsal to the rectus abdominis. True or false? Lots of confusing words. All right, let's reveal your answer. They've gone true, that is correct. All right, question number seven. The flexor carpi radialis is located in your hand. True or false? Get an answer down if you haven't already. All right, let's reveal the answer. They've gone true. No. They've gone false. Uh, do you guys need to talk about it? <laughs> We've got some uh, disagreement. I'm going to need a consensus answer here. <laughs> uh, the answer is false. <laughs> They've got one wrong. This is where humility is not always a good thing, church. <laughs> I meant in the hand. That's more there. So <laughs> All right, number eight. The rectus femoris is used in the extension of the leg. True or false? Oh. 
All right. It's like everyone's ready. Let's reveal your answer. They've put down true. It is true. All right. Question nine. We were talking about the knee specifically. I apologize. All right. Number nine. The triceps are used in the flexion of the arm. True or false? Nice and easy one. <laughs> uh, people still thinking about it, get an answer down quickly. All right, that's time. Let's reveal the answer to number nine. It is false. The biceps are used for the flexion of the arm. They're in. Sorry, I could have used the word agonist and antagonist, correct. <laughs> All right, number 10. Last one. The deltoid is superior to the quadricep. True or false? We're thinking about the anatomical. Not opinion. the answer to question 10. It is true. We are not talking about strength. All right. Let's um, maybe have a little raise of hands how people went. Count up your score. Amy wants to argue her point for uh, but it touches. Yeah. Nah, I don't like it. You disappointed me. I thought you guys would get 10. <laughs> we'll give them 9.5. They got a half, right? All right, Diane got six. That's pretty good. How'd everyone else go? Technically, you should be getting 50% because it's true or false. 50% is your uh, standard, right? Anyone get less than 50? <laughs> no one wants to own up. <laughs> Did anyone beat six? Got a few. What'd you get, Nay? Seven. Kai Ting? Seven. Marcus got ten. He was the only one that got ten. He's got he's got my notes, yeah. All right, well you two can take a seat. Thank you for being my guinea pigs. I apologize. I was originally just gonna pick on one of you, but I thought it was a bit mean, so I'll let you be a team. So what have we learned here? Apart from some anatomy. Were Amy and Simon born with special understanding of the human anatomy? Probably not. They went to university and they studied the human body. And so when presented with these true or false questions, they were actually equipped to be able to tell what was true and what was false. Uh, most of us were at a disadvantage because we were never properly taught, right? It's really simple to understand then as to why it's so important for us to be taught according to sound doctrine, isn't it? If we're taught well, if we studied well, then when faced in life, 
with true or false questions will be armed with the truth. You know, whenever someone is uh, speaking to you, um, you know, as I'm up here now preaching from tires, you actually need to be playing uh, true or false in your head. Is what I'm saying actually true? You know, don't believe every word that I say just because I say it this morning. You know, the first role of the elder in this portion of Scripture is to instruct and encourage with sound doctrine. When you know the truth, it will allow you to recognize falsehood. It equips the members of the church to actually recognize for themselves what is true and what isn't. So when someone comes along telling you about Mother God, you can actually discern that it's false. When someone comes along and tells you your good deeds need to outweigh your bad deeds to make it to heaven, you can point them to Ephesians chapter 2. When someone comes along and says you must still observe the Sabbath, you can point them towards Colossians chapter 2. You know, when the church is equipped with sound doctrine, it's not going to be vulnerable to false teaching. Right now, there's millions of people following religions with Christian roots that are completely departed from God's holy word. So the first role of the elder in this portion of scripture is to instruct and encourage with sound doctrine. The second is to expose false teaching. You know, the church is always going to be full of a a spectrum of people with different understanding of God's word, different interpretations. It's always going to be uh, vulnerable to the creeping in of false teaching. This church will have young children who haven't spent years studying God's word. This church will have new Christians who haven't had time to come to grips with the intricacies of doctrine and theology. This church will have people walk in with distorted versions of the truth. And that's why it's pivotal that our church elders expose, silence, and rebuke false teaching when it creeps in. When a church leader publicly identifies and shuts down false teaching, it makes it very clear to the church that that teaching is not to be tolerated. An elder has been given responsibility to oversee God's household. Identifying, silencing, and rebuking false teaching is one way the elder can help guard the flock. So, so far in this passage from Titus, we can see Paul is wanting Titus to silence the Jewish legalist Christians. In verses 15 and 16, uh, it continues by saying, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. You know, God calls us to be pure. In In fact, the born-again believer in Jesus is made pure. So Paul is contrasting the the true Christian with these Jewish legalists, which is in of itself an oxymoron when you think about it. You see, the reason the circumcision group was spreading their message was because they thought they were the pure ones. They were the ones who were circumcised. They were the ones keeping the Sabbath. They were the ones honoring these dietary laws. They were the ones being diligent, following all these different extra human commands. So when Paul wrote this letter, The Jews had thousands of rules and regulations deeming many things impure that were not by God's standard impure. They elevated their own laws above God's law. They added their own traditions at the expense of God's word. And when Jesus was speaking to some Pharisees, 
in Matthew 15, he quotes Isaiah saying, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. So their hearts were impure. And so Paul here contrasts these so-called pure Jewish legalists from the circumcision group. And he says they were actually the ones who were corrupted. Why? Because they weren't willing to believe that real purity was received as a free gift of grace from Jesus. It didn't make sense for them that you could actually receive Jesus' purity onto yourself. It didn't make sense not to add your own works of purity. And these people from the circumcision group, they claimed to know God, but their actions and their words said otherwise. All right, we're going to zoom back out. So Paul leaves Titus on the island of Crete so he could continue to help establish the different church congregations across the island. He instructs Titus to appoint elders in every town. And from today's portion of Scripture, we see our two interconnected roles of the elder. The first is to instruct and encourage according to sound doctrine. The second is to identify and silence false teaching within the church. So that's the timeless principle. That's what we can take away today and put into practice. For Titus, the application was uh, particular, particularly in regards to the Jewish legalism, right? Which is not so much an issue in the modern day Western church. So the question must be asked, if Paul was writing this letter to a modern day Titus living in Melbourne in the 21st century, you know, what false teachings would he be warning about? You know, what trends would Paul warn us about if he lived in our culture today? Because clearly we need to apply these principles to our situation today. For Titus, Paul had warned about Cretan culture. In verse 12, Paul quotes one of Crete's own prophets by saying, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This was the cultural predisposition of the Cretans. This is what the people on the island were notorious for. And we see Paul take this principle in the way he evangelizes. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul talks about how to the, to the Jews he became like a Jew. To the Gentile, he became like a Gentile. To the weak, he became weak. And why? In verses 22 and 23, he says, I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. So Paul tailored his evangelism to those he spoke to. In a similar fashion, Paul wants Titus of Crete's cultural difficulties. And it's important to be aware of the people we're surrounded with. You know, what cultural trends would Paul warn us about today? What false teaching would Paul warn us about today? And we don't have time this morning to start looking too deep into our culture, but it's worth reflecting on individually. It's worth our church leaders speaking into. Maybe it's something to discuss over tea and coffee this morning. You know, what cultural trends do you think Paul would actually warn us about today? Have a think about that. What false teaching would Paul warn us about today? What's crept into the church that's not actually in the Bible? I'll finish this morning with this. Why is sound doctrine so important? I've got two reasons this morning. First one, sound doctrine is important because our faith is based on a specific message. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 to 4, 
For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. You know, there's so much teaching in the Bible, but the primary message of the Bible is this. This is what is of first importance. And when this message is changed, when we stray, then we actually stray from the gospel. When we add the necessity of good works, we stray from the gospel. When we emphasize morality more than Jesus, we stray from the gospel. When we add or we subtract from God's word, when we overemphasize or underemphasize different messages from the Bible, we put ourselves at risk. Sound doctrine is important because our faith is based on a specific message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second reason why sound doctrine is so important is because the, the doctrine we adopt actually affects the way we live. You know, back when we were younger, we were on holidays um, as long, young little kids. Uh, Mom told Taylor, don't touch the iron because it is hot. So my mom taught sound doctrine, but Taylor didn't believe it. And so rather than stay away from the hot iron, she went right up to it, and with the full palm of her hand, she high-fives the hot iron. She experienced the consequences. And now, Taylor doesn't touch hot irons anymore. Why? Because the doctrine we adopt affects the way we live. When we truly believe the Word of God, you act in accordance with it. When we truly believe the Word of God, we act in accordance with it. You'll know what doctrine you adopt by the way you live your life. And sometimes we learn it the hard way first. So why is sound doctrine important? It's important because our faith is based on a specific message. We can't stray from that. Sound doctrine is important because it affects the way we live our lives. I'll close with this, a few verses from Psalm 119 verses 9 to 11. It says, How can a young person stay on the path of purity by living according to your word? I seek you with all my heart. Do not, do not let me stray from your commands. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Let's pray, church.